Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the x Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, as it's Wednesday night, June 5th, 2019, and on this episode... We'll touch on the White Sox Major League Baseball draft picks as the big story out of the last three days is one, Andrew Vaughn is taken in the third third overall, first first round for the White Sox. But following up on that, the White Sox drafted three straight high schoolers in the second, third, and fourth rounds. On top of that, the White Sox drafted many, many college seniors this year. And I think it has to do with their draft budget and paying for these new high schoolers that they selected. So we'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, we'll talk about the preview for the upcoming series in Kansas City as maybe the bad blood or the forever beef, as Tim Anderson calls it, uh, will continue on the road as the White Sox head to Kansas City. But first... The White Sox visited Washington, D.C. for a two-game series with a record of 29-30, and and it looked like in the first game that the White Sox were going to get back to 500, but they blew a five-run lead, and after coming back to tie the game late in Game 2, Trey Turner walked it off with a home run off closer Alex Colomay, and the White Sox are now 29-32. and Could this series been managed better? Well, helping me to discuss that is Imagine Editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast is Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. First, Craig Kimbrell is coming to Chicago. 
Cubs, wah, wah. according to the <laughs> according to the Athletics, Ken Rosenthal, the Cubs are signing Craig Kimbrell to a multi-year deal. Uh, but second, coming back to the White Sox, nothing like a trip to Washington D.C. to kill the buzz from a six and one homestead. Yeah, I, I guess you know if the White Sox are going to be a dramatically uneven team, I'd rather them save their best for home. You know, when you can actually you know please your paying customers, versus you know. Uh, saving the highlights for the road, getting everybody excited, and then just crapping the bed when you get back to Chicago. So at least there's that. But yeah, it's, you know, they, they face a good offense, and, uh, you know, th- this is kind of what happens. Yes, it it does happen, uh, especially Anthony Rendon happened uh, in the first game against Ronaldo Lopez, as the White Sox were leading 5 to nothing, but they lost 9-5. to five. And there are some that believe that Ronaldo Lopez was left in too long. And this is something that you mentioned in the White Sox wake-up call today. That it appears that Rick Renteria is forcing Ronaldo Lopez to work through these struggles. You suggested maybe a quick hook would speak more in volumes than trying to force the issue. Was Tuesday the perfect opportunity for that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would have. And, and I think, you know... At this point, I kind of get what Renteria is going for. It's, I guess the quintessential example is John Garland back in Ozzie Gein's first year. He had, you know, Jerry Manuel kind of managed Garland with kid gloves, and you know, I think he topped out like 160 innings and never was trusted to get out of jams. And then Ozzie spent 2004 letting Garland get into trouble and get out of it, and turned out that he wasn't all that bad at it and finally turned into a 200-inning starter after that. So I think that's the idea, is that when you have a guy who's struggling and he's shown he can do it before, you want to let him show that he can do it again. But I think after this one... Um, you know, just three hitters in the fifth inning without a terrible pitch count. You know, it wasn't the the issue that he had against the Royals where he was just throwing a lot of pitches well over 100 and it was kind of not, uh, senseless at that point. Uh, you know, he should have had enough in the tank to do it, but he just, the execution was terrible, leaving everything up. And then uh, when he tried to sneak a slider past uh, Rendon, as you mentioned, he did most of the damage series, but he just threw this uh, this ineffective spinner get me over that Rendon just trashed. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's an unconvincing. Um, yeah, just I guess his arsenal is unconvincing right now. The changeup really is being left up. The fastball he's getting under both of those pitches, and then the slider is not finishing either. So he he really doesn't have much working for him, aside from pure velocity. And when they can eliminate his other two pitches, especially like say you know third time through, then I think you have to start managing like like uh, Dylan Covey until he shows that he has you know two pitches or at least a, another look to give these guys. If Renteria was truly managing the game to win at any cost. Do you expect quick hooks for Ronaldo Lopez when he is struggling like that in the fifth inning? I think so. Or at least, yeah, I want to say so. I, I think um, right now Renteria is kind of in a, a long hook phase. Uh, but in the past, and, and we talked about it before, it's really hard to tell exactly how Renteria manages starters because he hasn't really had great starting pitching performances to work with. He doesn't really have these, uh, it doesn't come up too often to where he uh, doesn't pull a starter quick enough because the starter has already done enough damage, you know, through four innings to where it doesn't really matter. Uh, but right now I think he's in a bit of a binge where, he, and it might be where he's just trying to get these guys to grow and, and trying to see if you can stretch them a bit further past what is normal. And then maybe he can set a new normal after that. But I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best practice now that from what we know from starting pitching but uh, I'm hoping that you know at, with Lopez 
not really showing anything for, for a month now and blowing three big leads in a row that there's really... I think he's lost the benefit of the doubt at this point. I think he's going to have to earn his big boy pants back. And, and it's not like the, the game just snuck up on him. He was rocky in the early inning, especially the first inning. The second inning was okay. But then you know, he, he walked two batters in front of Rendon. He gives up a solo shot, you know, the third and fourth innings. And there's, you know, the, the signs are there. And I think, you know, as talked about, you know, if we gives up a leadoff double, maybe that's the thing you say, like, okay, he's done. Can't have him go into the heart of the order a third time. Um, I think that's what in, in games that he really wants to win. I think there's in a rebuilding year, and and this is still a rebuilding year. Uh, there should be some ability for a manager to try to push guys through uh, you know uh, tough luck lessons and see if they actually learn from it. Um, but in this case, having three of them in a row and being kind of demoralizing, I think yeah, maybe it's time to change something else. And and maybe Lopez, you know, it, it gets to him that way that just what he's doing right now isn't tenable. Lopez, after that start, said that he's thinking too much. Is that the crux of his issues? Is that he's thinking too much on the mound? I mean, maybe I, I'm not in his head, so I can't say. But I think you know, mechanically, he's not right. Uh, I, I think that's the one thing where I don't quite buy it, or maybe it's a a thing where. You know, he's answering questions in English through a translator, and he's not going to give really enlightening answers when you have a guy, uh, you know, interpreting questions and, and, and giving answers back. So I, I think right now, maybe he's overthinking things a little bit or maybe not feeling great about what he's doing. But, you know, based on the way he's releasing pitches, the way they're traveling, the way the changeup is hanging, hanging up or either that or being, you know, pushed down in the dirt... Uh, it seems like it's entirely mechanical, and and that needs to be corrected. And maybe you know there there are some thoughts going into those mechanics, but uh, there is a physical component as well that really can't be ignored uh, completely. Okay, so that's one area where folks are talking about Renteria maybe sticking with Ronaldo Lopez too long in Game One. But the one situation that's really having White Sox fans talk, especially tonight. Uh, happened in the second game. It's a 4-4 game. Tim Anderson singles. A great opportunity for the White Sox to take the lead after they were down 4-1. to And with Kurt Suzuki catching, it was also a great opportunity for Anderson to steal second. However, with Ryan Cordell hitting, the White Sox try to sacrifice Anderson over to third. Cordell bunts it straight to Rendon. And Rendon being an excellent third baseman defensively. Uh, the bad news for him is that he plays in the same league as Nolan Arenado, so he'll probably never get a gold glove. But Rendon made a great play, throwing out Anderson at second base. Cordell was safe at first. But the White Sox don't generate another run from that inning. And I can't for the life of me, Jim, I don't think I'll ever understand the idea of we are going to sacrifice Tim Anderson over to second. Why? I do not understand that line of logic. Just let him try to steal second base in that situation. If he steals second, then if you want to sacrifice him over to third, go for it. Uh, but after the game, uh, Renteria suggested that, well, if Cordell bunted to the right side of the infield towards first base, maybe he would have had runners on first and second. Uh, Renteria doesn't find any fault in his decision-making here, Jim, with his post-game comments. But with this bunt, and we see it over and over again during his tenure since he's taken over for Robin Ventura, the bunting, uh, is this something now that Rick Hahn needs to address with Renteria? I mean, I 
I imagine it's been addressed already since it's been a problem and they extended them. So I imagine Rick Hahn doesn't really have a problem with it. At least, you know, when it comes to, or at least he thinks what Renteria brings to the table in terms of his personal relationships and his ability to communicate and help players grow and give them, uh, yeah, be patient enough to learn with their mistakes, uh, apparently outweighs whatever decisions that he makes during the, uh, you know, during the game, and we saw that too with Robin Ventura. He said that you know, he said that Ventura was a great manager, you know, from uh, 10 p.m. to 7 p.m. and and uh, you know what he does between the lines isn't nearly as important as what he does you know before and after the game. So I, I imagine it's just you know the front office is fine with it. So I don't think it's really something Rick Hahn has to do because Rick Hahn endorses it well enough. So I think it's really a matter of just Renteria if he's going to be. Um, you know, when it comes to the White Sox actually winning enough games to where these marginal decisions matter, you know, whether he's going to smarten up or, or get past the, the, the risk thing. Cause I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I mean, the one thing with Anderson stealing second, there was a lefty on the mound. So maybe that's why you don't feel as great about Anderson getting a great jump, but with, you know, a, a lesser arm of Suzuki behind the plate, I think it's worth doing. Um, but, you know, the, the bunt is always seen as the least or less risky option. And when it blows up like that, I think it's worth acknowledging that you know, getting a successful bunt down is a risk, too. You know, there's a risk of just getting nothing from it and throwing a batter away. And when you treat it as something that should have happened, uh, I think you should also treat Anderson stealing second as something that should have happened on a catcher like Suzuki, or at least give him the same amount of odds of succeeding. So that's why that's why I don't really like about the introspection and decision making there, uh, and I, I don't really expect it to change as long as Renteria is in this teaching mode where uh, he's got a lot of young players who are underqualified uh, and, and maybe not really major leaguers. In the case of Cordell, we don't know, and I think he's got this you know teaching mode to where he does make these small ball calls and. Yeah, I kind of hope that if he's the manager when the White Sox are good or good enough to, you know, think about winning every game you can and and these losses really hurting uh, contention, I would hope that he gets past it and, and trusts his players more. But I there's really no evidence of that. It's something he's going to have to show because we haven't seen it. Do you have confidence that he'll be able to make this transition even for himself from teaching to managing every game to win uh no not really but i mean that's just with the white Sox. i don't have you know a whole lot of faith in them in terms of their decision making and and renteria's case they hired him without an interview and uh, or at least interviewing anybody else going outside the organization so in this case you know i think renteria is more qualified than ventura was and if they hired him through a uh, thorough process, then I'd feel better about it. But, you know, given the way the White Sox hired him, you know, it's just I think Renteria is going to have to show some things that uh, when we've had a few years now to see that uh, he's got these bad habits. I don't think uh, there's you can count on there being a switch. He can just flip off. He's going to have to show it. Well, the good news out of this series is that Yohan Makata had a good series. He had two home runs. Uh, mm-hmm. Jose Abreu also had a two run homer on Wednesday, and Wellington Castillo tied the game with a home run, and he had some interesting pregame comments that he feels that he needs more at-bats to get into a rhythm and start helping to contribute more. Do you agree with Wellington Castillo that he needs to be in the lineup more? Uh, no, not, I mean, not really. Like, when James McCann is playing as well as he is, 
uh, it's a hard case to make. Now, I think, you know, if he's playing with a catcher like Kevin Smith or Omar Narvaez last year when they have some major liabilities themselves and they don't have the track record Castillo has, then I think you can throw around some veteran clout. But McCann is a veteran as well, and he's playing at an all-star level right now or close to it. So I think when you have that kind of competition, you just have to, you know, maybe it is true that he's used to getting more at-bats and he doesn't feel like he can play through it when every game has to count towards getting his numbers over, you know, 200 and getting his uh, OPS over 700 and all the stats that you want to see from Castillo. But I think just with the circumstances the way they are, he just has to admit that he's being outplayed or at least, you know, know that for himself. And, and, and try to keep those comments to a minimum. Well, coming up next for the White Sox, they have an off day on Thursday, and they arrive in Kansas City for a three-game series against the Kansas City Royals. Before we preview that series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way to buy tickets. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you are looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you could stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. Here's how SeatGeek works. It pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10. And finally, SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map so you can get a good understanding of what the view looks from those seats. And SeatGeek breaks down the details. The green dots mean those are good deals. Red dots, those tickets are overpriced. Do not buy them. And every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And especially if you're buying tickets for baseball games, SeatGeek allows you to download the tickets onto your smartphone for digital tickets, making it easy access into the stadium. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy White Sox tickets. As a matter of fact, I'm going to Portland in July and I bought eight tickets to go to an MLS match. It'd be a fun time to go see the Portland Timbers. And I use SeatGeek for that purchase just because I find it to be the easiest way to find tickets, buy them at a great deal. And the best part of SeatGeek is that you, our listeners, get to save $10 off your first purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app on your smartphone and use our promo code SOCKSMACHINE. That's promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. And as I mentioned, the White Sox are now heading to Kansas City. The Royals are currently playing the Red Sox as we are streaming this episode. So their record, if they lose, they'll be 19-42. and 42. If they win... They'll be 20 and 41. Things have not been going well for Kansas City. In their last 10 games, they are 2 and 8. So they've definitely hit a rough patch. And before Wednesday night's game, they have lost five straight games. And your pitching probables for this series on Friday at 7.15 p.m. Central Time. This is the only night game. It is Ivan Nova against Homer Bailey. Uh, last time these two faced each other, the White Sox had that awful rain delay, and then they tried to make it through five innings, and the game ended up having to be delayed into uh, the very next day uh, where Yomer Sanchez walked it off. So these two will face each other again. On Saturday, afternoon game, 1.15 p.m. Central Time, it is Lucas Giolito Day, and he's going up against Brad Keller. That should be a fun one. And on Sunday at 1.15 p.m. Central Time, it is Ronaldo Lopez again, this time facing Glenn Sparkman, who was thrown out of the game in his last start against the White Sox for hitting Tim Anderson in the head. White Sox are 6-3 and three against the Royals in 2019, Jim, and there's been a lot of drama between these two teams 
with that action happening in Chicago. So now going into Kansas City, are we going to start these games with the umpires handing out warnings to each dugout? Well, you know, I don't know if it's uh, the warnings are handed out to each dugout. I don't think that was the case before. I think that's why, you know, when when Ned Yost came out of the dugout to argue and Martin Maldonado argued, I think they were blindsided by the protection Anderson received, or at least the uh, what the umpires had observed. So, you know, maybe not uh, straight up warnings, but I do think the league, I would hope in, in the case of Anderson, especially that the league had sent a clear enough message to the Royals that they are watching to see how they pitch Anderson and making sure that they don't do anything that can even be uh, construed as intentional towards him until, you know, they prove that they can behave themselves long enough for a pitch to slip again. So I imagine that would be the case given how the last one, you know, ended with Anderson there. So, uh, but I think, you know, the way Anderson responded to Sparkman's uh, hit, and, you know, he did say a forever beef after the game and said that he hates the Royals basically, but nothing he did on the field um, suggested that he was going to escalate uh, the reaction and, and, and force anything, you know, force players to come out of the dugout or whatever. So it seems like he's under control. So uh, if the Royals are, I think it's going to take something like an Anderson Homer maybe to, uh, to maybe get them irritated again. I feel confident in the Friday and Saturday games for the White Sox to win, but on Sunday, I just don't know. And we talked about it earlier in this show with Ronaldo Lopez. I just don't know what the White Sox are going to get. So after what we talked about, could Renteria handle Lopez differently against the Nationals? How about a this start? If it happens again, if the White Sox give Lopez a comfortable lead early, and again, Lopez struggles in the fourth or fifth inning and starts coughing up a comfortable lead, do you think Renteria will make that change on Sunday and pull Lopez early. I would hope so just because especially if he shows the warning signs that he'd been showing in previous starts where he's leaving a lot of pitches up and giving some deep fly balls and, and uh, allowing damage or getting lucky not to, to suffer more damage, then yeah, I think that'd be the case where, you know, you can't expect him to all of a sudden find it in the sixth inning when he hasn't found it through the first five or first four, whatever, uh, especially as the pitch count creeps up and hitters have seen them. So this would be, I think, the time where there would be no excuse, say, if Renteria leaves him in to face four batters in a in a close game when he's got nothing, you know, well after, uh, you know, the, the time he should have been pulled. So this is, I think, when you can shift strategy, have a, a fresh bullpen after a day off. You can go longer, assuming that, uh, you know, the uh, first two starters hold up their end of the bargain, and I think they will. Um and that might be the case to say like, okay, you have uh, the, your privileges are gone. <laughs> this has been, uh, we're in the third month of uh, ERA of uh, six plus pitching and something's got to change. There are some White Sox fans that are throwing the idea of demoting Lopez, sending him down to Charlotte to work on things. Now, at first I thought that's a crazy suggestion, but we just saw Colorado do this with Kyle Freeland who finished fourth in the National League Cy Young race last year. So if Lopez struggles again, do you think that option is on the table? Maybe not so soon, just because they don't really have anybody in Charlotte to call up, aside from Dylan Cease, and Cease should be up to take Manny Banuelos' spot. So uh, they're, they're really short on starters otherwise, and I think with all these off days, giving Lopez some extra days, um, you know, maybe having more thorough side sessions with Don Cooper. That might be the way to um, address the problem, I'm trying to use this extra teaching time, extra rest period to 
really load up on hammering through these bad habits he has. Now, if he gets to the, you know, July, gets to the All-Star break and nothing's happening, uh, and the White Sox have somebody they can call up, and right now it's really hard to think of another starter that's worth it, aside from you know, just a random veteran that they're throwing out there in AAA, um, you know, maybe that's a time to make a, a bigger decision. But right now, I think, uh, given the ways they can shape the rotation with all, you know, six off days in June, it's probably better off just uh, leaving it be for now. We'll be recapping the White Sox Royals series on Monday's Sox Machine podcast. Uh, so look forward to that. And hopefully we're talking about another White Sox series win against the Kansas City Royals and uh, putting themselves in a position to be at 500 again. I don't expect a sweep by the White Sox, but hey, uh, they swept the Royals last time so they could do it again, especially when the Royals are not playing great baseball at the moment. Uh, they could be 32 and 32 um, when we talk about this series on Monday, and then it'll be more in a positive light. But moving on from what is happening on the field, we will end this episode talking about what the White Sox did in the Major League Baseball draft. Andrew Vaughn was the first round pick. That wasn't a surprise. That's what a lot of people thought leading up to the Major League Baseball draft. But what is a surprise for the White Sox is they took three prep players in a row in rounds two, three, and four. In the second round, they drafted right-handed pitcher Matthew Thompson. In the third round, they went prep pitcher again with right-handed pitcher Andrew Dahlquist. And in the fourth round, according to Jim Callis, one of our best friends of the podcast of MLB.com, they took center fielder James Beard, in which Callis says he's the fastest player available in the draft. So there's a lot of tools to work with for James Beard. So with those three high schoolers, you got to buy out their college commitment so they could be expensive. Rumor has it that Andrew Dahlquist wanted $2 million to buy out his college commitment. And in the third round, the White Sox slot value for that pick was $750,000. So how do you pay for someone like Dahlquist? Well, from rounds five through 10, the White Sox took all college seniors, guys that the White Sox can pay a $10,000 signing bonus to. So it's a very interesting draft strategy by the White Sox and the director of amateur scouting, Nick Hostetler, to really front load as far as the top 10 rounds and save a lot of money from rounds five through 10 to pay these three prep players. Do you like what the White Sox did in the draft, Jim? It's different. And I think there's reason or there, there are multiple reasons why they did it. If they wanted to get pitching, the college pitching was supposedly terrible. And I think you've, you've written about that and didn't really find anybody to write up. So if the prep pitching was the way to go, you know, they do have to pay more for it. Also, I think with the way the White Sox farm system is shaped, you know, assuming that uh, Michael Kopech and, and Dane Dunning come back from their Tommy John surgeries and, and full working order. And you know, given Zach Birdie, that's not necessarily a given, but let's say they do. Let's say Jimmy Lambert's ready, and let's say that Connor Pilkington makes some strides, and they have some guys that, you know, maybe even Bernardo Flores, if he's there, they have like a number of um, high floor arms that they can give starts to in 2020 and afterwards. You know, there really isn't a need to draft any college pitcher just because they have a bunch that they'll need to go through already, and if they really don't think any of them have the ceiling to get through that, then... Yeah, maybe they can step back, draft a couple prep arms, which they really haven't done since 2014 with Spencer Adams. 
step back, you know, grab a couple arms they like, uh, maybe s- apply their new uh, pitching analytics and and you know coaching to them. See if uh, you know anything's changed from the last time they drafted prep prep arms. Like Adam Adams and Danish really didn't pan out. Um, it's it's worth trying, and I, I think. Uh, Given how much, how many innings they have and rookie ball to go around, um, this would be the year to do it. And I think Beard, you know, same thing. It's kind of a, uh, they have a lot of outfielders, especially at the, uh, in the college drafts from previous years with uh, Luis Gonzalez and, well, Blake Rutherford is in college, but he's now in, in that college pick age, um, you know, to, to evaluate Steel Walker, another guy to evaluate in high A and double A. So, you know, trying to find an outfielder there that just, adds to the log jam doesn't you know they're d- diminishing returns to that so taking a step back and getting a guy like beard who they really like and, and you know the, the the reports are positive i think with him it's just more a matter of he hasn't faced competition and he's gonna have to learn on the fly in pro ball you know more so than other prep picks uh you know it makes some sense so i think you know the, the there are some logic to it that i think satisfies me well enough whether they can actually execute it and help these guys matriculate and gain velocity and everything like that i'm skeptical of or at least you know i'd have to see it but uh at least for nick hostetler's job it does make a certain amount of sense now you follow you you follow the draft more closely so i'm curious you know maybe your thinking is has more weight than mine i wouldn't say it has more weight i saw matthew thompson at wrigley field during the july showcase and i will be at wrigley in a month for the 2020 uh, showcase. Uh, For those that don't know, Under Armour has a national showcase. They take the best prep players for the upcoming draft. So next year for the 2020 draft, uh, they're going to be playing a game against each other, East versus West. And that's where I got a chance to see Bobby Wood Jr., CJ Abrams, Riley Green, uh, a lot of guys. And Matthew Thompson was there. And looking back at my notes, he was sitting between 91 to 94 with his fastball. I was impressed. He made some really good fielding plays from the mound. And from my notebook, uh, I have athletic next to Thompson. And then underneath that, Texas A&M. And I think I wrote that because one of the guys I was asking for advice from uh, was somebody part of the LSU staff thought that Thompson would be really expensive. And if he wasn't going to the first round, he'd be going to college. But for everything that I heard, or it shouldn't say heard, everything that I read about Thompson this spring is that he really struggled. So I guess things must have changed in which Thompson becomes, I don't want to say cheaper, but yeah, he becomes cheaper to sign to get him out of his commitment to Texas A&M. I don't know much about Andrew Dahlquist, but I'm intrigued uh, especially with his perfect game performance, being a West Coast guy. And then James Beard uh, just seems like a, a really athletic, toolsy uh, type of outfielder. I, I like this strategy because I do think what Nick Costeller has done, Jim, is that he's given players to Chris Getz to start testing their new player development efforts. And I think it's best to do this with unproven 18-year-olds to see if your methods work then rather spend these picks on college players from the SEC in which when we just had Eric Loggenhagen on our Monday's podcast mentioned that there are some colleges that are elite in player development and they're better at developing teenagers than major league teams are. Mm-hmm. 
So if you want to see, if the White Sox want to see where their player development efforts are and if they really want to test it, I think this is a good opportunity because looking in the past, uh, the White Sox have struggled with these rounds of draft picks, even though they are spending millions of dollars on bonuses on these college players in the past. Uh, why not go in a different direction? So I, I'm with you. I like it. I think it's a breath of fresh air. I think it makes sense too, just because when you when you think about drafting teenage players, I imagine the player development uh, that goes into identifying raw talent and, and shaping it in your system also applies to international signings. And the White Sox really haven't had luck with taking what Marco Patti's found and turning it into talent. Yeah, Mike Rodolfo was the first one to get to Birmingham and he's hit a wall there uh, thanks to the injury, uh, not really getting able to get in the field. So, you know, it's been, Marco Patti's been, I think, there for five, six years now. And, and aside from uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., there hasn't really been anybody who's exploded or at least, you know, developed on a um, straightforward timeline. And I think, you know, that might be what the White Sox are finding there, but it also could be that they just aren't great. And with the draft, they've basically outsourced their player development to colleges. And it would be nice if they could bring that in-house and have uh, the ability to take an 18-year-old and help them get up to speed. Because I think if they can do that with uh, domestic players, then they should be able to do that with international players. And even for next year, and there will be a post on SoxMachine.com where I'm going to highlight the players to follow this upcoming summer for the 2020 Major League Baseball draft, it's going to be college pitching. I mean, there is outstanding college pitching options next year. And there are some really good college hitters, and you still have some really good prep players as well, especially on the position player front, like Pete Crow Armstrong, PCA. You're going to hear a lot about PCA this summer if you're going to be following for the 2020 draft already. Uh, I can see where moving forward, this is the strategy. The White Sox take a college player because they are making the most investment in that player. So take someone that's a little bit more developed. So you're not, it's not a complete risk, right? For the four plus million dollars if the White Sox have the seventh pick next year in the major league baseball draft. I'm just assuming that's where they're going to land. But then, you know, for the rounds five through 10, I don't mind them, you know, stacking college seniors, especially if you have TrackMan data. Take these fringy guys that maybe have the opportunity to have an elite skill. I know you're really shortchanging them with a ten thousand dollars signing bonus. That's terrible for these college seniors. But I, you know, the word is that they're the most eager. They still want to continue their dream by playing baseball, so that's why they shortchange them. Um, but if you're going to try to make this commitment to get younger in your farm system, spending your second, third and fourth round picks in the upcoming drafts and going over slot for those areas and grabbing these top 125 prospects in the second, third and fourth round like they did this year, uh, I don't think that's a bad plan. It's just it does shift the. Uh, responsibility. Nick Hosteller is finding these kids that have a lot of talent, but then the ball is in Chris Getz's court. Can he develop them properly? Yeah. And, and I think there was a, I want to say it was Joe Sheehan on Twitter. Uh, either it was him or a conversation he was involved in, but talking about how the game's getting younger and you have these guys like Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Juan Soto and, and Ronald Acuna coming up 19, 20, 21 and hitting the ground running. And he said with the velocity ticking up and exit velocities ticking up and, and, and the game just getting faster that it is going to be a young man's game just because of the, re the reaction time and the reflexes required to 
you know, react to 100 mile per hour pitches and, and react to 105 mile per hour batted balls. And you get the White Sox when they draft heavily in college, by the time they get a player, he's 22, even 23. And, uh, you know, might put them behind the curve. So I think it does make sense to reinvest in this. Uh, and, and I think they would have to do it, like you said, for more than one year because it is a crapshoot. Um, you can't look at one year of high school picks and say, like, well, the Hostetler made bad calls. All these guys are bad. <laughs> it's going to take uh, the development curve is so long that you're going to have to need a, a bigger sample to know what you're doing, what's, what's working, what isn't working, and uh, you know, better understand how to bring these guys along because I think the, the good teams are benefiting from younger talent and the White Sox uh, are not a good team, but if they want to get, get to be a good team, they do need to develop their own superstars without you know having to trade away their only good players to acquire them from other teams. Yeah, so Nick Hosteller, Marco Patti, and Chris Getz, they are working on building the... 2023 and beyond contending White Sox teams. But by drafting Andrew Vaughn, that helps with that helps Rick Hahn because uh, that's someone that I do think will rise quickly through the White Sox farm system, or at least they could push him quickly through the f- roster. The way that Luis Robert is hitting in double A, I, I suggest that the White Sox are slowing him down on purpose uh, with his promotions. Uh, but, you know, maybe Andrew Vaughn is this last piece that. Rick Hahn's going to get through the Major League Baseball draft to build a contending White Sox team prior to 2021. Uh, everything else is going to have to come through trades and free agency signings. If that is the expectation is that the White Sox are going to make this transition from rebuilder to contender by 2021, Andrew Vaughn is this last first-round pick that Rick Hahn's going to get. Uh, everyone else he's going to have to get through free agency and trade just because it's unrealistic to take someone in the 2020 draft and pencil them in the 2021 uh, White Sox roster. That just uh, it's unrealistic. But uh, we'll probably talk more about the Major League Baseball draft when we get an opportunity to have our best friend of the podcast, Jim Callis, come on uh, on the show again uh, for the Sox Machine podcast. I'm sure he's got opinions because it was just not the White Sox that took this strategy. The New York Mets also took this strategy, and I wonder if this is going to be a strategy moving forward for all Major League Baseball teams when it comes to the Major League Baseball draft. But that will do it for this episode of Sox Machine Live. Thank you guys so much for listening to the live stream at Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. One, there's an update iTunes is dead, evidently. I'm not a big Apple guy, so I didn't use iTunes. But instead of iTunes, use Apple Podcasts. It is a separate app. Uh, as Apple has moved away from iTunes, you can still find our show there. We are on Spotify. We are also on Google Podcasts and audioboom.com slash Machine. Socks Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. 